Hello, and welcome to ACRO Live, our series of podcasts with founders of the college and other senior fellows who have been, played important roles in the college over its 40-plus year history. The college was founded in 1978 by 18 practitioners who formed a group with, dedicated to exchanging thoughts and ideas about the developments in the real estate industry and has sustained itself over the last 40 years. And I am pleased today to have as our guest, one of the founders, Don Siskin. Welcome, Don. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor. Well, it's an honor for us to have you as part of this series of podcasts. As, as, as you well know, you are in that first group of lawyers who joined the college in 1979, officially, after the early startup in 1978 by your friends, Fred Lane and Ray Potter and John Gose and others. And we're, we'll talk all about that and what your recollections are and reflections are from your time from the very beginning in the college. But, but before we do that, I think we should talk a little bit with our um, audience here about uh, your early life and growing up in Providence and um, you know, what you'd like to share with us from your New England roots. Well, uh, it, it, one of the nice things about growing up in a small, you know, fairly small town like Providence is that you you did have a, a small group of friends that uh, uh, you really were friendly with. Uh, I went to a high school called Classical, which uh, was sort of an academic high school as opposed to the big high school Hope, where as opposed to a class of 400, there were 80 some odd in the class. Um, most of them went on to good colleges. Uh, unfortunately, most of them are no longer with us at this point, but you you did, you, there's actually one who also practiced in New York, he was counsel at RCA, and he and I went from kindergarten through there. It was an, an, an interesting way to grow up in a small town like that. My dad had gone to the same high school. Um, he was born in 1896, that gives you some idea. <laughs> and, um, um, and anyway, yes, it was an interesting way to grow up. I went away to, um, they, my parents wanted me to go to Brown, which was closer to my house, house than the high school. And so I wasn't going to go there. They were very disappointed because I guess it was a miracle I got in. So they were very happy. But then I said, I'm not going because I can walk there and I had to take a bus to high school. And so I had to come up with an excuse. And I said, I want to go to undergrad business school. And I went to Wharton. And that's the history of how I grew up. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you if it was being a rebel, not going to Brown. It was, oh, especially, and uh, oh, kidding, my dad was the GE distributor. And at the end of the war, it was so difficult to get appliances. And the then president of Brown, whose father became president of Citibank, of course, became a friend of my father, so he could get those things. And uh, when I got into Brown early admission, not that I was so smart, and I turned him down, he called my father and let him have it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I should also ask you if, if, if like our, your friend and my friend, Mike Facitelli, if you grew up on the wrong side of Providence, as he likes to say. <laughs> no, Mike, no, uh, I, I, I didn't. I think when I was a baby, 
that we did live there because my parents were married in 1929 and my daddy, from what I gather, was a pretty good speculator in real estate. And we lived there for a number of years, but uh, just before my bar mitzvah, which was 1950, uh, they, they built a nice house over on, on the other side, near Brown, on the east side. On the good side. <laughs> and okay. so now you've got, that's the family history. <laughs> so, okay, so you came down to Philly and went to Wharton. Um, most people, I assume, like now, who come out of Wharton go into business, but you chose, business, you chose law school. How did that happen? Well, first of all, I was an accounting major. And the first thing I did was to get a CPA because I wanted to be a tax lawyer. And um, then um, uh, when I got out of um, uh, Columbia, uh, I, uh, I took the mass bar because I wasn't going to go back to Providence by then. All of the jewelry manufacturers were going out of business, and the population went from a quarter of a million to 150,000. But my daddy's business was also in Boston, so I was going to practice in Boston. I took the mass bar and passed that. And then I got offered this job at Marshall Bratter in New York. And much to my parents' chagrin, I took it. And um, I took the uh, CPA exam in the New York bar. And um, I went in the tax department for a couple of years. And then a guy by the name of Bill Zeckendorf went bankrupt. And it was the largest American bankruptcy. And it was the biggest real estate company. And firms didn't have thousands of lawyers. I think we had 68 lawyers. And they threw all of the kids on the web and nap bankruptcy, including the kid who's talking so much now. And after two years in the, that bankruptcy, I always said, Bill Zeckendorf created my career. I walked into the senior partner who was the Green of Marshall Bradder Green, and I said, Mr. Green, I think I'm going to leave because the bankruptcy is over and I don't want to go back to the tax department. I want to be a real estate lawyer. And he turned to me and said, you're a real estate lawyer. And now we're talking. <laughs> and that's the start. that was the start of Marshall Bradder's official real estate department. Yeah, that was it. And well, Jerry, Jerry was the real estate department. Uh, but uh, really, that, that that's, you know, so the getting the CPA exam, which was much tougher than either the New York or the Mass Bar, was a total waste. <laughs> but so wh while you were at Wharton, you had already decided you wanted to be a tax lawyer? Yes. So I became an accounting major and a finance minor. And what was what was what was pulling you into the into being a lawyer back then? I figured if I am going to go into the tax field, I think you're better off as a lawyer than an accountant. So really, you know, I always assumed when I went to Columbia Law School that I would be a tax lawyer, and. Um, you know, I, I took whatever courses there were, you know, not, not just the those that you were required to in the tax area. And um, and that's actually how I got the job at Marshall Brado. John P. Allison was a very well-known New York tax lawyer. And, and that's how I went there. I mean, Green was a real estate lawyer. I never heard of him. And I didn't know. Any, and then and what was real estate? I mean, the guys who closed houses in Providence, they, they weren't big shot lawyers. <laughs> So what were some of your first big real estate transactions in Manhattan? 
Okay, well, after the web and map thing, which was huge, then I had some, some really major Manhattan ones. Um, the IBM building, the AT&T building, uh, and so on. But then, as, as you know, you've heard, um, I lucked out and I became counsel to Cadillac Fairview. Oh. And uh, the rest is history because I was doing all the Seagram's work and all the Cadillac Fairview work. And it was all over the country and all over the world. And yes, I didn't screw up, but I was very lucky. You know, it's one thing not to screw up, but you've got to get the opportunity. And that was pure luck. And were those Canadians investing in the U.S. because they were following the Reichmans and Owen White? No, they were, they were, no, they were doing it because they had enormous wealth and there just wasn't that much to do in Canada. I mean, they owned everything worthwhile in Montreal and Toronto and a bunch of stuff out west, but they, they really had to put their money somewhere. And, and was that back, was that the sort of early days of people doing transactions, not just in their backyard, but nationally across the country? Yes, very early. I mean, yes. Owen Y followed that from Canada, you know, the Reifman. But um, yes, it was in the very early days. The only thing that was uh, national about that time were the shopping centers, as you know. They were, you know, there were two or three shopping center developers who were going across the country. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, all of us who belonged to the ICSC early. And, uh, you know, I think you were one of them. As I recall, there were only about a half a dozen of us uh, who, were, who were lawyers, members of the ICSC. But that was the stuff. There, there was very little by way of office buildings and even less in apartment buildings. It was shopping centers that were going across the country. And you had, you know, the two or three major shopping center developers. And uh, Cadillac Fairview, I think, was the third among them. You know, you had the really big. And then you did have somebody like the uh, uh, Rathmans with, with, um, with uh, O and Y, who started uh, doing uh, not, just, uh, not shopping centers, but, but it started doing other types of buildings. So when... So Marshall Bratter only had a New York office, right? We had a Washington. It was a small Washington. Oh, you did I mean, have a Washington. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in the beginning, it had like three or four people. Mm -hmm. So started for Cadillac Fairview and others doing deals around the country. How did you do that sitting in, in New York City? Uh, I did it, you know. Poor Beth, may she rest in peace, had two little kids at home, and I was flying all over the country. I, I, you know, I, you know what, this sounds terrible, but sure, I was probably a better lawyer than a father. <laughs> they did pretty well at all. Lawyer, husband, father, you did just fine. <laughs> I lucked out. <laughs> but, but did you, did you, did you engage other counsel? Because there were no national, there were no national offices. Oh, right? yes. Yeah. Oh, of course I brought in local counsel. I mean, that's how I met people like John Hollyfield, because we did a lot of stuff in Texas. And, and that's how I met. Now I'm having a senior moment. Who's, who's my friend in L.A. who I just I stopped to see him when we were out in the desert? Uh, Vol you know, Dick Volpert? Dick Volpert, Yeah. How, how's that? How's my memory? I just that's went perfect. to see him. I mean, he, he's really not in good shape. Yeah. And, 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 and she's not well either now. So, so okay, so you, you, your clients that you were working with 
sort of we're at, as we said, sort of really at the beginning of this transition of real estate to a national business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Um, and then it became international because I looked out and I brought Jones Lang Wooten to the United States. So that gave me an internet. I had a lot of luck. So most people will not know Jones Lang Wooten. Of course, they'll know, they'll know Jones Lang LaSalle. Right, so okay. it's, tell us a little bit about what J Jones Lang Wooten was, because I know those guys too. Okay, well, JLW was, 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 was the real estate, what we call here in the States, brokerage or management firm in, in England. And they decided to come to the States and you, you know, in New York, you had to be a you had to be a, a U.S. resident. So I was the president, and we opened the New York office. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! <laughs> so, nineteen seventy-eight sounds like a bunch of people that I'm sure you knew get together, based on what, what some of us weren't around then have read, and decide they want to form a group called maybe the Association of Real Estate Lawyers, they, they, they were debating <laughs> but they want to form a group. Um, and, and how did that, you know, how did you know about that? How did it come about? What, what, what role did you play in the beginning? Tell us about that. I'm not sure. I'm, in, in, in the, um, I'm not sure who, somehow or other, I believe that the person who called me who has passed away, for whom I had just tremendous respect, and now I'm having a senior moment, from, from Seattle. Um, John Ghost. John. Uh, somehow, I believe that John Ghost called me. Don't know where he got my name, because I had not done a deal with him. It wasn't someone, you know, because I had done deals out there, but I hadn't done a, I think somehow or other that Ghost had called me. And the other person that by then, I, I I knew was was Howard Kane, because right. I, I, and that was through the ICSC. In the days when there were only three or four lawyers who were active in the ICSC, because of Cadillac Fairview, I was active in it. Yeah, some it, somehow or other, those are the names. But I believe I believe that it was it was ghosts. And you must have known Tony Cochran, of course, in New York. Oh. Tony Cuckman was, you could not have had a better friend than Tony Cuckman. Forget about what a fabulous lawyer he was. He was just a wonderful human being. There was no one that I wanted to have lunch with more often. And we had lunch at least once a month. And the difference between Tony and myself is, God bless him, I never had a drink at lunch. But you sat with Tony. Well, he had a couple. <laughs> Nobody yeah, well, was smarter. Nobody was more decent. No, and no, they were just fabulous. And and he, along with Fred Lane, right, were the yeah, drivers. But, uh, yeah, but Fred, I met through Apple. But 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 uh, Tony, I knew from day one. Okay, so you get invited in 1978 or 79 to join yeah. this group of guys, mostly yeah. that, that you know some of them. What, 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 what was it like at those first few meetings? Well, it was wonderful, and I'll tell you why. First of all, as I said, I was lucky. I had a national practice 
because of, of the two things, because of Cadillac Fairview and because of Jones Lang Wolf. And that, therefore, I was meeting people across the country and whatnot, which was very different than my... And real estate was a local thing in those days. I mean, you know, corporate was national. Tax could be national, but really. So that that really, that was terrific. And um, I had, there were other people in, in that small group in the beginning, whatever it was, 80 lawyers or whatnot, whom I had already met uh, because of the, the, the national nature of my practice and others that I met and said, gee, if I ever have a deal in your area, we're going to do it together and whatnot. And it became really terrific. And frankly, I, mean, I had become active in the local, not in the New York State Bar, but in the city bar. But I began to move away from that into this, because these were the people that I was dealing with across the country. Is, you know, the city bar people, those are my competition in New York. These other people were the people that I was dealing with all over. <laughs> Well, and that's, of course, right, that's, of course, one of the major differences from 20 years later and what one of the maybe key drivers was that, you know, John was sitting in, in Texas and Hetledge was in St. Louis and Howard in mm -hmm. Chicago and Morty in Baltimore and you guys here yep. in New York. And, and, you know, you needed assistance, right, to do these deals. You needed cooperation. Every, everyone, you know, a real estate deal you know, unlike a corporate deal, a real estate deal, you really have good local counsel because you didn't know what you were doing once you got a, well, I, look, yes, I was a member of the mass, Bar, but believe me, I'd hire mass, mass counsel. You know, I never really practiced there. I mean, other than New York, I would never do it alone. Okay. And, and how do you think, I mean, you obviously watched it from Marshall Bradder moving into Rosenman and, and then Catton and lots of things that have happened to all of us and to the industry over the last 25, 30 years. So now we're in a world where there's national law firms, right? Yeah. But, but Acral, lots of us think, right, has still maintained great importance, but it's different now. How do, how do you think, how does Acral maintain its relevance in the past 15 years when there's always national law firms? I, I believe it does because, and I, I, I really mean this, as good a lawyer as you may be, and in the locale where you are or whatnot, you do learn from others. And others have done certain kinds of deals that you haven't and vice versa. And I do believe um, that it is... It, the the nature, I mean, you did, I did lecture at ABA meetings across the country. I, I put ACRO much more, much closer to things that I did lecturing for the ICSC than, than for, because it became national. And that was the good thing about ACRO. It became, it really became national. Um, uh, and you really needed that because if you did have a major practice, it was it was an, it was no longer just where you were because if you had major clients, and and frankly, I'm sure even more so if you weren't in a place like New York, you know that you really had to do that. I mean, you could concentrate in New York, and I knew very good lawyers who did, and I felt fortunate that 
that, you know, mine was more of a national practice. But I think in, in many states, you know, if you were in, in Wyoming, you were here or somewhere, something like ACRA was so important to them. Well, and if you were in Illinois, like Howard, right? It was, you know, yeah, yeah. Chicago was the center of the country, but truly not the center of the real estate universe. Absolutely. What you just said is... Uh, right. So... So, you know, and what you just said is exactly what we've heard from some of these other people like you who, who, you know, have been around and seen the world change that even though everybody was operating on sophisticated deals in their, in their backyard, some nationally like you inside their firms, that what the college provided was more insights because there was always somebody else who may have done something or thought about something that you didn't do. Absolutely true. And you did, for instance, I did, you know, much to, may she rest in peace, to Beth Chagrin. I spent nine weeks in Houston doing a giant deal. And of course, I became very good friends with John, with Holyfield. But, but I mean, he, he was so important to me because what did I know about Texas law? Yes, did I, had I done a lot more shopping centers than John? Yes, but I knew zero about Texas law. No, so, that was that was true all over the country. It happened in New Orleans. I did. I mean, the law there was so different. I mean, I did the first the first mall in New Orleans. I had no idea what I was doing. I I I could have been a, a pediatrician as far as knowing what was going on down there. Yeah, it was important to have good Acro fellows in Louisiana and California. All all of what you're saying is true. Okay, so you, you've obviously seen lots of very good lawyers, lots of not so good lawyers. You've mentored lots of people. Um, you were mentored by great people, like you said. What kind of advice do you give people to, how, how do you become a good lawyer? How do you become a trusted business advisor? Okay, I think there are two, you, you, actually there are two things that you said in there separate. Right, two different things. Um, I believe if you're going to go, it, it, well, let's do the, the the, the, the one that we both know about, or that most learn about, you really need senior, senior advisors in, in your law firm. And you've got to find someone, and it's very, I mean, I was so fortunate that, you know, I had a mentor like Green, who was an even better businessman than a lawyer. He was a fabulous lawyer. But I mean, as you know, the man died with close to a billion dollars. <laughs> but I learned the business of it as well as law. Plus there were other really fabulous lawyers that I learned from. The other side of what you're, you're saying, and it's very true, is um, I don't care what you learn in law school, you need to have someone who teaches you not just drafting, but the how to do it in a manner in which you don't spend enormous amounts of your clients' dollars negotiating language as opposed to fact. Because, you know, it's one thing, an English major is one thing, it's another thing that you just get it out there in a way so that everybody understands it. The last thing I'll say, and I considered had a lot to do with whatever success I did have is, you got to have some business judgment. 
that I'm not saying everybody has to go to Wharton School. Don't be selfish. But I am saying it is important if you're going to be a lawyer in the business world that you do have some business background. I think that you really, because in order to apply uh, the, the, the law, you, you, you need to understand that, um, that you also have to keep in mind that the deal is the deal, and therefore you have to shape it in a way that, that, that the business part of it works, not just your beautiful language. Well, said, I agree with that, of course, but you can sort of turn it around a little bit, right? It's not just business judgment, right? And this is, I'm sure, why you continue to help mentor me you know, going to the Wharton real estate thing. It's about understanding your client's business. Exactly. Right. Yep. I mean, as I think our, our, our friend, good friend, may he rest in peace, Dick Goldberg used to say, good lawyers are a dime a dozen. There are a lot of good lawyers out there who can draft and who are smart, right? Um, particularly in, in New York City and other places. The question is, what differentiates people and how do you become valued and provide value to your clients? And can you really do that, whether you're a real estate lawyer or a corporate lawyer or telecommunication or anything else, can you really do that without really understanding the client's business? You said it all. Far and, better than I far but, better than I could. You know, this is not a scholarly thing. Yes. That I for 13 years I taught the advanced real estate course at, at Columbia. That's not the issue. You've got to understand the business deal that you're doing. So, okay, so look, you went to Wharton. That, there are not many places better. Um, maybe some people up in Boston would think differently, but that's only four years. <laughs> and, and that's, that's not, there probably wasn't very much real estate. There was no Peter Linneman and Joe Jerko back there when you were there, right? So how <laughs> did you, how did you um, gain sort of the real insights that you did over the years into the business side of real estate transactions? Uh, one word, Jerome Milgreen. <laughs> By having a great mentor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that I was, look, I mean, I was the luckiest person. Two things. Many people, and you probably have heard this because people at Acril have said it, when we're talking about how I got into real estate, talking about Bill Zeckendorf, quote, if that poor bastard hadn't gone broke, what would have happened to your career? It's all true. I mean, I learned so much about the most complicated deals in two and a half years handling that bankruptcy. And everything that I didn't know, Jerry explained to me. Well, and I guess the analogy is like the wild gotcha bankruptcy guys working under Harvey Miller, right? Yep. In the later years. Yep. All that kind of stuff. In and the Harvey Miller, Miller was such a good guy, and I'm not mentioning names, but you know, we had some bankruptcy lawyers. I, when I had a real question, I, call, I knew Harvey. I called Harvey. What do you think of that? Right. Right. And then I'd say, Harvey, so we'll go to Harmony and have lunch. He said, no, no, Don, you don't owe me lunch. It's okay. Right. So obviously the practice of law has changed many fold over, many times over since you started um, you know, what, what, what do you think are the most significant changes in law practice over the years that you've watched it? Uh, well, 
first of all, I think one of the things is that because the net was smaller, you had better personal relationships. Today, I think, you know, it's it's really, to me, it's more like an accounting firm. <laughs> you know, I thought of all my friends that I had, you know, as I said, I was an accounting major at Wharton and a lot of guys, you know, went to the, went to Pippi W and this and that. I think law firms are more like that today. <laughs> I think, you know, I was lucky when I started, you know, as I said, the firm had 30 some odd lawyers and, and today, you know, you can start with a firm and it's got 800 lawyers. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the real difference today. Well, and what you allude to, of course, is the technology component, right? Where deals get done now with nobody ever being in the room with the other side. Nobody ever going in the office. I'm not kidding. I mean, he shouldn't have. We have 13 floors in that building on Madison Avenue. I went in because I needed, I couldn't find something that I had left in my office. I walked through five floors, it was empty. Everybody's working from home. Right. Right. The only place to, the only place that was busy was the mail room. <laughs> so so stick with that from a person with great perspective. So we're, we're obviously the last two years in a very, very different world that nobody ever could have anticipated. The professional services across the board, including the law firms, pivoted quite well to, to work from home. Um, and, and the firms did very well last year, as I'm sure you've seen. I'm sure Catton's the same. All, all the firms had great years. Um, the real, and the real estate transactional practices were as busy as they ever could have been and recovered far faster than, than anybody ever would have thought they would have recovered. John, John Gray said on an interview we did with him last, last May you know, that there was a wall of capital sitting behind a dam. And the minute the dam broke, the capital was going to come flowing out. And obviously, as Blackstone's buys, you know, more huge deals every week, that, that's been true. Um, but what, what's your thought about the next challenge? It's just what you say by walking through your offices is getting people to return to the office, not to return to work, return to office. What, what does that mean for people who are working remotely? if they're not in the office on a regular basis? I think, I think a very, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's going to be a large percentage. I don't know whether it's going to be more or less than 50% where people normally will work from home and come in when they have to on certain things, whether it's some kind of a closing or this or that. I'm sure it's different in, in different aspects, you know, corporate real estate litigation, tax, but no, no, it's never going to be the same and you will never need the same amount of space. And there will be never be the same number of, of these inner conferences that we all had. But in terms of people sitting in offices, that's never going to be the same. So what do you think that means for office buildings in the major cities? I'll be the first to tell you, I can't speak of cities other than New York, but certainly in New York, where such a large percentage of the population lives in suburbs, it's not good. It is not it is not good. And I think that one of the ways that you can prove it is the house prices in Westchester, and I can only speak there, or in, 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 in nearby Connecticut, have skyrocketed. 
because people are working from home and are going to stick doing that. And maybe they have to go into the office once or twice a week. But that's. But the contrast, right, as I'm sure you know, the contrast between the law firms and the Blackstones and the Goldmans and those kinds of people, those kinds of companies, they mm. all require their people to come back to work because they, they, they recognize that we can't mentor people as well. Yeah. I happen to agree with you. I don't think law firms can mentor, mentor people. I mean, that was half, half the idea. How did I get mentored? Because, you know, I, I sat in Green's office. Well, he went over my documents and told me I couldn't draft to save myself. I mean, come on. That was absolutely necessary. Yes. No, I agree. I'm not sure how that's going to work out. But the whole mentoring had to be just that. And believe me, I mean, you know, and you'll laugh, but I don't think anybody wanted to be mentored by me. But the fact of the matter was, you know, you know, the, I, the one thing I brought was some business judgment. And, you know, we had a lot of very scholarly lawyers, but one thing they needed was to learn the business side of it. And I don't think you can do that on the telephone. Right? <laughs> well, it's hard. Think, yeah, it's hard enough to do it, as we were just saying, when you're not going to meetings to negotiate. Yes. But, but hopefully you're in. You're, 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 Jane Neveloff is mentoring somebody younger at the firm and, and people are sitting in those offices and, and participating in conference calls or whatever and maybe being put on pause or hold for a minute when, when Jay can lean over and say, hey, this point's really important and it means this, this, and this, which you obviously can't do very easily, if at all, when you're remote and, and trying to Teams or Zoom or whatever. All true. Listen, he had to put up with me, the poor guy. I know. I know. A right? poor guy. <laughs> but, but, he's, but, he's, but, but he also he also had a nice guy like Bennett Polikoff. I mean, so you know, he had a share. He had a decent guy like Polikoff, and then he had a tough guy. <laughs> he was, as I'm sure he would agree, very lucky to be mentored by the two of you guys. So, <laughs> a great at a great law firm. Um, at a terrific law firm that you know, and you you guys, you know, you guys, you know. Marshall Brad or Shane Gould, you know, Schulte. I mean, all, all that, those were the center of the real estate world, right? For big real estate. I mean, yeah. Rodney in Chicago has a big, big real estate yeah. practice. But, but you guys were sort of the center of the universe. Yeah. Uh, well, because it, it, was, it, was, uh, it wasn't classy enough for the Sullivan and Cromwells and the Cravaths and the Davis. But, I mean, you know, when I started doing... J.P. Morgan's work and J.P. Morgan had been represented by Davis Polk, you know, since uh, God knows when. That's when they wanted they wanted me to come down there. And I said, yeah, I said, yeah, you want to take the whole department? There are 29 of us. And they said, no, no, no. And we'll take this guy Polikoff with you. We'd love to have him, too. I said, yeah. And how about the other 27? They said, no, no, no. I said, see you later. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that how dry that's how dryer and trap folded up into Greenberg? Yep. Right when they when they couldn't make it. Yep. You got it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, just you know, I mean, and, and if you if you were sitting here now with a crystal ball, right? What do you think? How do you think the practice of real estate law will shift and change over the next five, 10 years? Well, 
I mean, if we're not talking about the business about at home, which I think, uh, I, I, I think that there's going to have to be uh, a, a get together in the office in order to teach people. I don't see any other way. Secondly, I believe the negotiation of deals has to be together in a room. And it's, it's a, I really do. Um, the rest of it is that you may find a lot of people, and it's unfortunate, who end up as drafts people as opposed to deal people because they're doing it at home or whatnot. And I think that's unfortunate because we both know. Yeah, am I the world's best drafts person? No. I mean, there are people like me, rest in peace, Bennett, who was both a good businessman, great businessman, and a great drafts person. I was never a drafts person. I mean, yeah, can I make a deal? Yeah, I, I think I can say I can do that. But I, I do believe that you're going to have to be together to make a deal okay. and to learn how to do it. Yeah, well, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, like most things you've taught me over the years and shared your wisdom on. I think oh, oh, that wait, don't get don't get carried away. The the um, yeah yeah well, yeah yeah. But I think I met you. You're a pretty smart guy. Like, <laughs> like you said in the beginning, right? That's that's really a two part sort of problem. First, it's getting people to return to office to work. Second, it, and this is much, and I think that's supremely important and we'll see if it happens um, over the next three or five years. The question of getting people back into rooms to negotiate, which we haven't, that's obviously a pre-COVID shift that we moved away from over the last five or 10 years. That's yeah. a much bigger challenge, I think. And I, I think you do, you obviously lose so many components and ingredients of a deal when you're either talking on a speakerphone, maybe there'll be more Zoom calls now than, than there were before. But, you know, you know, pretty hard to see people's body language and see what's going on and what they're really thinking about when you're not in the room with them. Look, I mean, I, I go back to forget about what's going on now, as I said, and, and you know, poor Beth had to put up with it. If I'm negotiating a deal and when CF Cadillac Fairview or Jones Lang was doing stuff all over the country. To me, it was very important to go there and sit in a room and do it. Right. There, right. As opposed to being on the phone. I, I really did. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff Newman used to give some wonderful lectures about, you know, what, what, what's going on in the initial chatter, right? Before you sit down and talk and watching people's body language and Amy Cuddy and all the body language stuff which, you know, is very important in, in all I, these I, I agree with 100%. I, I, I always thought that was a very important part of it. Okay. And that's, of course, how you got to meet lots of people and have great meals in all these, all these cities that you <laughs> And I met some good friends. Made some good friends. So let, let me, let you, you've been very generous with your time. I want to ask you two last questions. The first one is, given your enormous perspective and and accomplishments over your fabulous. Oh, don't career. get carried away. Let's let's try to keep this on. on a, let's try to keep this on an honest on an honest okay. level. That, that's very honest. What would you, looking back, what what would your advice be to your twenty five year old self now with everything you know? I'm sorry, I, I didn't get you. What what advice would you give yourself at twenty five years old now, giving everything you've seen and done? Well, first of all, 
is I would listen carefully to my own mentors, but I would also listen if I were in, in a negotiation or whatnot to the other side. And before I jumped at it, I would think about it. Um, and I think that one of the things that's very, very important in our area in real estate, which is a business, is that, you know, assuming you were a, a classical language major, is that it'd be a good idea, either by reading or taking some courses, to pick up some, what I, I, would, I would call, you can call it transactional, but I would call it business knowledge and economic knowledge. Because certainly in what we did for a living, that's very important because you then begin to understand just what's important. And you then, you know, so the, when the client says, I want A, B, C, and D, say, but which of those are the ones, if I get you A, B, and D, I think that's very important. As opposed to taking the position, I've got to get A, B, C, and D, or there's no deal. That could be a big mistake. So it's learning balance and and, and, and what's important in transactions. Yes, yes. Okay, so my last question is, if you could choose a profession other than law or maybe tax accounting or that, what, what do you think that profession would have been for you? You're gonna laugh. If I had had any talent, I wanted to be an architect. No, I, I'm not gonna laugh at that because I know your love for architecture and the great tour you gave us of New York City at the ARPI meeting in New York City. <laughs> no, so. if I had had any talent, that's what I really, I, I love. And if nothing is, you know, I did a lot of traveling and then nothing, you know, I could just stand and look at a building and say, well, I finally got to see it. And it could be a building that was a thousand years old, the one that was built last week. <laughs> Great, well, that's with an appreciation of architecture, it obviously made you a better real estate lawyer. Well, I don't know about that, but that meant it, it made it a richer life. Yeah, good, great. Don, this has been wonderful. We, we so appreciate you taking the time to doing this and sharing all the wonderful insights and reflections on both Agrol and, and, and also importantly on how to be a really talented, good real estate lawyer and bring value to your clients. So thank you. Let, let me say two things. One, ACRO meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally, because professionally, yes, I learned a lot about things. Wrong. I happen to be lucky and do deals around the country, but I learned a lot and I met the right people in, in that professionally. And secondly, like yourself and so many others, I met so many people had nothing to do with the profession, who were good friends and whom I really enjoyed being with. And interesting enough, may she rest in peace, Beth met a lot of their spouses and whatnot and the whole thing. It, was, it wasn't just professional, it was a wonderful social occasion. I couldn't agree more. Thank you very much, Don. Thank you, it's always, listen, I, this has got nothing to do with this interview. If you're coming to New York, if this thing is getting over with now, we got to go to Harmony for lunch. We are, not to worry. Thank okay. you. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye.